Hey, Andrew here. Just a quick warning before we get this episode started. This episode does contain content that references historic recounts of violence against Native people, and specifically a historic account of sexual violence against Native American women. Listener discretion is advised. Thanks. From the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at ASU, I'm Andrew Ramsamy, and this is The Huddle. The Washington NFL team is finally changing its racist name. The battle has been fought in and out of courts for decades. And this past weekend, the announcement was made that it would retire the name and logo for good. After sporting a black box and the hashtag Black Lives Matter on social media, protesters in and out of sport launched demands to finally rid itself of the racist name, something which owner Dan Snyder had said many times in the past he would never consider. The final straw came when three owners with a combined 40% stake in the team publicly announced that they were selling the team, and retail carriers like Nike, Amazon, and Walmart pulled their merchandise from their shelves. We recently sat down with Amanda Blackhorse on the huddle prior to the announcement, and we welcome her back to the show, along with Mojave American poet Natalie Diaz, Olympic gold medalist Billy Mills, and Arizona State University Professor of Indigenous Education and Justice, Brian Brayboy. Hello to you all. Thank you for joining me. Hello. Thank you. So, uh, Amanda, we literally just spoke, what, a week or two ago uh, about this discussion about the R word and the mascot. And here it is now. The Washington team has officially announced that is it is retiring the R word and the mascot, despite in its press release using it at least seven times. Um, what did it take to get to this moment? Well, I mean, if you would have told me a week ago that this was going to happen, I would have said, you're a liar. <laughs> like this is not, that's not, it, that's impossible. Um, I, I, I just actually just, you know, didn't think that this would happen, um, anytime soon, just given the history and our, you know, pushing the team for so long, all of these years, um, and how resistant they were. It just never thought it would happen, and it did. So it's been very exciting. It's been very crazy and busy and just the, the overwhelming response, I think, has just been really amazing. Um, but I'm also just very cautious, too. I'm like, what are they going to rebrand it to? I don't know, you know, um, so, and just given the history of the team and how they've treated natives, I'm like, it could be anything, you know, it could be another native theme. I don't know. So a lot of mixed emotions. Yeah. Billy, your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are it's, it, it's not over. And being as, as quickly as I can, I might take a couple minutes I think America has to understand what I'm going to call footprints. They're going to have to understand the doctrine of discovery. Manifest destiny. Treaty signed, treaties broken. Slavery. Jim Crow. The new Jim Crow, which is the war on drugs. Because those footprints are etched into every fiber of our social way of life, educational way of life, entrepreneurial way of life, our political system, forever 
dictating our rule of law. So, without understanding what that created, not much will be accomplished. What was created was generational trauma and generational privilege. And generational privilege thinks anytime there's an attempt to adjust something that could empower generational trauma and help them heal, <clears throat> they, they think it's a, a left-wing conspiracy. And then on generational, privilege, generational privilege, we have lined up there the, the Christian right, and we have other people lined up there not knowing why their belief is the way it is. I think neo-Nazis, I think white supremacy, they're lined up with generational privilege. Anytime you try to solve and empower people suffering from generational trauma, they feel there's an attack on their or genocide on their on, on the white population. And this conflict goes back and forth. So until the patriots of generational privilege are willing to meet with the patriots of generational trauma and realize they've got to come together. If we're going to save our democracy, or do we turn into an autocracy? And collectively, we kind of choreograph the horizon of America's future. So it goes much deeper than I think what the ownership of the Washington team understands, and far deeper than what their fans in the stadium, how they conduct themselves and how they react. So uh, I, I think we've, we have a lot of education to do. And Natalie, what do you think the removal of the name and the mascot means? Oh, I mean, I, I agree a lot um, with Mr. Mills. And um, also, I wanted, you know, to express gratitude for Amanda and, and the work that, that she has done and Susan and some of these, um, you know, people who are way ahead of, of the curve. I, I mean, I agree that this is a beginning. Um, you know, there's a lot still unknown. I think right now is a really important time for us to recognize the power of language and uh, the pressure for language to evolve. And a lot of the things uh, that Mr. Mills mentioned um, are, are related to doctrines, related to language that has been writ to solidify what is America, um, you know, hundreds of years ago. And, you know, for example, even our Constitution and its meaning, our Bill of Rights and those meanings, um, at a time when natives, when, um, you know, descendants of slavery, when many of us weren't considered fully human. And so there's a way that, that the American language, that American English must evolve the way our, our country has. Um, and I think something that's really interesting is, we're seeing this, um, I mean, what one thing that this means to me is that, uh, you know, empire creates a lot of terrible relationships. And, and at the same time, it's also creating a lot of very powerful relationships. And what we're seeing right now are um, a movement, the Black Lives Matter movement happening and feeding and fueling a lot of indigenous and native movements. And so you see a lot of this cross-pollination this, uh, this energy exchange that, uh, that is impacting where we're headed in the future. 
And, you know, whereas America, American English has often, especially in relationship to natives, has often uh, relied on erasure. You know, for example, in, in Mojave culture, we name a place for what has happened there. Whereas in, in the United States, we name a place after the white man who, quote, discovered it or claimed it as his own. And so I think there's something uh, about memory and monument and memorialization that is also playing into this. And it's, di it's directly tied to our demand for, you know, an evolution of language. And Brian, how has this moment impacted you and, and the work that you're, you're doing right now? Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, I, I really appreciate what others on the call have said. I'm, uh, I must admit that I'm a, I'm a bit more hopeful. I, I understand the notes of caution, and I, I think that getting at the, the roots of these becomes really important. I, I guess in some ways I'm viewing this through a couple of different lenses. One is of the, is this of the father of, of a 16 and 18 year old boy, um, 16 and 18 year old boys. And as someone who works at an institution that um, and does research in in this area around symbols, and so for my 16 and 18 year old, um, they really see this as a commencement, as a as a beginning to begin to um, rewrite and reframe the terms of the debate uh, and what that means for their generation moving forward. I was just lamenting the fact that uh, my 18 year old recently um, in sort of looking at some of Amanda's tweets and stories was online and, and sort of going in his words, he was chirping with some of the, the posters on there. And I was both really proud in the moment and profoundly sad that my 18 year old son was, was involved in, in this and that we had not evolved beyond where we were Um with that work. And so I'm a bit more hopeful now than I was last week when he was, he was doing it. But I think the, the, the these more deeply held issues become really important. If you think about the term merciless Indian savages, that shows up in some of our, our founding documents, you begin to think about how is it that we've been, we've been framed. And if you think about a country that's largely founded on land that was people was deterritorialized, meaning people were removed from it, getting to Natalie's point about erasure, it, it was first physical erasure. And then later it became a myth behind that about having grown something on vacant lands. This gets at the doctrine of discovery. I think that Mr. Mills is, is getting at and the importance of really understanding the origins of this, the beginnings and the origins, which for me aren't necessarily the same thing, but what do we then do with a myth that continues to be told and retold? And what I've said before is I think that there's real power, not just in the first telling of the myth, but frankly, in the retelling of it, just reinstantiates it and, and creates it, makes it part of the very fabric of the country that we're in. And so I think we're at a moment when we think about this as whether or not this is going to be a movement that is like footprints in the sand and, and high tide comes in and washes them away, or returning to this textile moment and this fabric, is it going to be like rich uh, French pressed coffee in a white, you know, white cotton that won't go away? And I think we have a moment of reckoning here about what kinds of new truths might we begin to create? How do we go back to the genesis in the beginning? And 
start telling a different kind of story and disrupting these myths that have become truths. And uh, Amanda, we were talking before uh, in our last interview, which I forgot to hit the record button, but I'm actually happy that I did it because now you get to answer the, answer this question. Uh, Dan Snyder, right, owner of the, the Washington team and his head coach, Ron Rivera, are now tasked with coming up with a new name for the team. Should any part of the new name of the team have any homage to indigenous culture or, or what should this be? And, and, and who has been asked to be a part of that, this endeavor and trying to figure out the name for the team? Um, I think that we should not be a part of any rebranding of the team. Uh, native people, native imagery, native themes, native names, anything to do with native people needs to be completely removed from their brand in order for, you know, in order for things to be right. But I also think that 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 really wouldn't make things right. Um, you know, I think it would take more than that in order for for the for the team to really truly stand um, and say that they are fighting for racial justice. Um, or that they stand, you know, with um, against racial injustice. So, you know, I'm just a very staunch advocate against any sort of native, native imagery in sports. Um, and I just, I find it very interesting how throughout this entire process, um, they, they said they committed, they, they, you know, done a thorough review, but yet, who are the native people that they've talked to? Um, there's no transparency in the franchise at all. Um, and never once have, have I heard them talk to the, you know, thousands of, of native people who have been fighting the name for so many years. Um, so I think that this push to change and rebrand is you know, of course, because they're being forced to. It's not because they've had a change of heart or that, you know, they're doing it for all the right reasons. I think they're doing it because they have to. Um, and so my distrust with them is just, you know, the wounds are still pretty deep, you know, in everything that we have gone through with the team. Um, and so at this point, I just really have no trust at all with them. And um, and I just find it very interesting that Ron Rivera, who just got there, is now has all the say so more than actual native people do. I just think that's so interesting that he's been tasked with this. Um, and it, I think that just shows just how much we are invisible to the team and not really invisible, intentionally pushed aside and intentionally silenced and erased. From their reality. That's what it seems like. And in the statement that they issued, um, you know, talking about the, how they were going to look at this, it also included the military. So, you know, not sure if Billy or Natalie or Brian, what your thoughts on that? Like, why was this sort of uh, this moment kind of co-opted with now this tag of the military as a part of this rebrand and this new name? You know what I think uh, in reference with the name, and I'll go ahead and say it, the, the theme, they have the Redskin theme. 
when I hear the, the Redskin, I don't think of a football team. I think of the Sand Creek Massacre, where weapons were taken from our people. We had surrendered. Couldn't keep a knife if you captured a, if you trapped a rabbit to skin it. Food was being brought in from the military, and I believe with with uh, well, the military was bringing in the food, but back at the fort, bounties were being paid for the scalp of the Indian people. So as they approach outside of what is Denver, Colorado now, they opened fire on the indigenous people and started scalping many before they were dead for the bounty. They scalped the female. The female bounty, as we know, brought the highest, the female scalp brought the highest bounty. And the young, the young girl before puberty, her scalp brought the highest because of delayed generation of indigenous people. And the story is, how could they tell it was a female? The scalp, the men had their hair long also. They scalped the genitalia of our women the genitalia of our young girls before puberty and played perverted games with the saddle horn and the scalped body part. They severed the penis of some men and played the perverted sex games as they went back to get their bounty. That was the military. So I was appalled or shocked when I heard the potential of trying to keep a native theme along with the military. No place in our nation's capital. So I want the name change for several reasons. One, to honor the dignity of our women. They saved our culture, our traditions, our spirituality. And I'll close with this. The story I just told, I heard it in eight other countries as I've traveled throughout the world to 109 countries. Other countries are studying what we're discussing. Other countries are studying the indigenous people. They know the doctrine of discovery. Any new lands found can only belong to the first Christian monarch that discovers them. And the indigenous people can only occupy, and they must adapt to Christianity. They know and they're studying if the indigenous people became Christians in the Americas. They could own land. They understand that that created the most devastating genocide on humanity. Estimates of 54 to 94 million indigenous people killed. So I associate very strongly, although I'm proud to have been an officer in the United States Marine Corps, willing to give all my life so our country can live. I still associate systemic racism with the military as well as with patriots of people coming from generational privilege. And Brian, I mean, this moment wouldn't have happened, sadly and unfortunately, without the the killing and 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 maybe you know we'll find out at some point later on down the road legally that George Floyd was was murdered by police officers. How has the Black Lives Matter movement helped to raise this cause in this moment? I think Natalie started down this road earlier. I, I think it's it's a particular moment. I, I want to sort of say I think 
But Black Lives Matter has done a couple of things for us. One is, and I want to sit for just a moment in the specificity of, of this moment and this time in terms of George Floyd, but obviously others that came came before this. We really think about Michael Brown being murdered on the streets of, of Ferguson and his body um, being, sitting there in the hot sun for four or five hours and then sort of coming to George Floyd. I think in this moment, people really rising up and saying, we have to think really seriously about institutional and societal racism and really demanding for change. And I think in this moment, sort of building on on what Susan and Charlene Teeters and Amanda and, and others have really sort of that press on indigenous peoples, I think, besides the specificity of the moment, is an opportunity here for coalition. And the coalition with Black Lives Matter and mascots and the mascot movement isn't new. This is, there's a pretty interesting history here among folks coming together. And for me, there's something about the coalitional work that might come out of this. If we're going to move forward with larger questions of addressing structural and institutional and societal racism, it's going to have to be through calls of coalition that really name the larger challenges of anti-Blackness, of white supremacy, of the ways in which those really function and operate in silos. And so in some ways, larger questions of racism work when it's just a quote-unquote Black issue or when it's just quote-unquote a Native issue. When you begin to tear those silos down, it pulls away from the fact that white supremacy continues to exist in, in somewhat uncritical ways. And there isn't a call for coalition in the same way that there is where you start to link George Floyd and the use of these mascots. So I want to be really clear. I think that there's something important about the physical violence that we saw with George Floyd, this guy sitting on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Um, and then really the rhetorical and the discursive violence of the symbols of this name. I, I think I just want to sort of say um, quickly, I think that sort of going to and trying to do some native theme piece doesn't get at the institutionalized structures of this where there will continue to be chants and there will be continue to be these tomahawk chops and those kinds of things. I think we have to call those out for what they are, those symbols and the symbologies. And so George Floyd's passing at the police hand, I think, has really provided a moment here for us to think about the coalitional work. There'll be calls for Native people to stand next to our Black brothers and sisters in the process um, as we move this forward. And I think there's real hope and promise in us thinking about the coalitional work that, that lies ahead of us. And Natalie, I mean, this has been a, a, a name and an image that has been used nationally, but we know when we drive around locally in our own towns, in our own communities, we see images of, of these names, we see, you know, the words on streets, we see high school teams and local teams that, that use mascots. What do you think the impact will be? Is this an important moment or a dangerous moment? I, I think most dangerous moments are very important. Um, and I think that is uh, some of what Brian's talking about with coalition. What's happening right now in America are these coalitions are very dangerous and they have been in the past. Um, I think something that's that's really interesting, for example, and one of the reasons why I, I believe um, something Amanda mentioned earlier was 
why does Ron Rivera have so much power in this? He's one of three minority or coaches of color in the NFL. And so in some way, they're, I believe they're trying to use that as, as well, non-white, everybody's kind of the same. So if Ron Rivera does this, one, it will, it will seem as if there's some sort of um, commonality or, or, quote, collaboration there. And, and collaboration and this idea of like uh, transparent collaboration, you know, from anything from a few, a few natives collaborating with Johnny Depp on his cologne. So he thought he could go out there and create these ridiculous commercials to um, a collaboration with, you know, a few natives to say we agree with the Washington team name. You know, there's always been this, this really troubling kind of Again, transparent, they call it, because they want to normalize it when really, you know, the big decisions are happening in these dark undercurrents. Um, And I think the same thing is happening in relationship to this, quote, collaboration with the military um, and, you know, Native Americans. That was one of the things Rivera said was that he's, you know, he and Snyder are working on a name to honor both the military and, you know, quote, Native Americans. And, And so I think this you know, in, in the ways that they're noticing these coalitions happening there, you know, um, I know, for example, here at ASU, um, after we had one of our events here with, you know, some native performers, they were uh, native hip hop artists the next day, Amanda and, uh, some of these groups were, uh, were protesting against, um, the name, you know, at our Phoenix stadium here. And so I think, I think what's happening right now is, and and the reason why I say it's a beginning is we're just seeing what's possible when we, when we rebuild, because I think these, as Brian has said, these coalitions have happened before, but we're returning to them in new ways with the new younger generation, uh, you know, uh, part of that generation being, you know, uh, people Brian's age, the people we're seeing out in the streets right now. And, and what they're realizing is they're realizing, you know, the power of their, their voices together and their presence, you know, and, and just to quickly like toss in my nickels worth about, uh, you know, renaming or who, who should name like, you know, and especially because I'm a poet and, and, you know, a a former athlete and language is, is, you know, where I work. It was once the language of my body and now it's, it's the language of my speech and, you know, just kind of sticking to that idea of the mascot and what the mascot is and has been, it it's it's something a little bit uh, trivial. You know, it it, it it etymologically it it comes from the idea of a talisman or a charm, and so to imagine that this mascot would be some sort of talisman or charm to you know these American athletes on the field, um, and I, again, I think that's a, a you know athletics are a very much a danger because of, you know, the way they can bring people together in camaraderie and toward a common goal and to make them feel like they are, you know, they have a power and a power, that power is often a power together. Um, but it, there's also a lot, especially now in this capitalist, you know, country and how much money these sports bring in, there's also a way that, that sports are being used often in nefarious ways, you know, um, you know, from our, you know, one of the things they did at the boarding schools was, you know, sports, sports would keep us under control. Um, you know, and I say this again as having, you know, been an athlete, like I, I got my college paid for having been an athlete. Um, but I, I think it's also important that, that we're aware of, 
kind of that fanatic fervor and, and what it can create and how we might use language, athletics, uh, the idea of coalition versus collaboration um, in order to kind of continue this energy to pressure it so that they don't just replace this name with, with something um, as nefarious or something, you know, as offensive um, and something as e- erasing as the previous. So Billy, you, you talked about footprints. I mean, just last year was the 55th anniversary of, of you winning a, a gold medal. Um, how does this moment not disappear into the ether? How does it not just dissolve away by the team just replacing the name? And, and how will future generations know that this team was on the wrong side of history for a very long time? History is being rewritten. It's just being rewritten. The next 200 years of the history of America will represent and introduce to future, future generations a total different type of collage of America. There'll, there'll be people of, of Asian ancestry, uh, African-American ancestry, Native American ancestry. The, the diversity that is the beauty of our country will be the history of America's future. So we teach by not forgetting the past. We teach by collectively choreographing the future. And uh, uh, I, I think the name is going to have a hard time dying because people in the stands, if, if they came up with the name, for example, Warrior, uh, the same insults will occur to us game after game after game. So uh, it, it it's going to be the people of America coming together and teaching, in a sense, what's right and wrong. For example, you hear people say, I have the freedom to do whatever I want. Well, we have the freedom to commit murder in America. However, our liberties set guidelines for us. Our liberties are based upon morality, ethics, spirituality, and our liberties put our freedoms in line to where we don't harm other people. So as we teach future generations, I, I just think we'll, we will know that to have the, be the freest country in the world, we have to have the utmost discipline to remain a free country. And we just can't be free by doing what we want. Liberties put us in place. Snyder does not recognize the liberties. So Amanda, we, you know, we've seen over these past few weeks and a few months, you know, Confederate flags and statues and items and things being torn down. And everyone is saying that these things need to be preserved because history can't just kind of absolve itself by being eliminated or being thrown away. What part of this story for you needs to be preserved and and how should it be preserved? Well, I mean, that, you know, that analogy of when people say this is a part of our history, we need to, it needs to be there so that we can remember it um, is kind of like the way people say um, one of the common arguments that we hear with the mascot issue is they say, if this goes away, no one's going to remember you guys anymore. You know, if, this football team's not here anymore. You guys are going to become invisible and it's and extinct. And it's like, no, that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I think that's just people who are resistant to change, um, who say those things. Um, 
and people who don't have a whole lot of interaction with Native people. So the same thing goes for people who want to preserve um, Confederate statues. You know, they're they're they don't have very much um, of a connection to people of color who have to see it and feel the way they feel. You know, they feel bad when they see it. It's a grim reminder of the genocide, the colonization, the you know slavery, and the history that goes along with it. Um, and so, um, you know, Billy mentioned um, white supremacy earlier. Um, that's exactly where that comes from. Um, you know, we're always going to, people are going to remember that. And, you know, 50 years from now, people are going to look back and say, wow, we really had a football team called the R word. That's really racist. You know, just the way that we look back on history and say, oh, there was segregation was actually a thing, you know, Um, even though it is still, you know, that still does exist in in many places today, Um, you know, but I think we will look upon these things and say, that was such a bad idea. Why was it not changed sooner? Um, And so these are the very things that, you know, we, what we need now is action in today's society. Um, no more contemplating these things, no more no more arguing whether or not something is racist, no more debating whether or not the R word is a racist term. It's racist and it needs to go. And that's, that's that. And uh, also, um, um, Natalie spoke about, it, about this new generation um, of, of younger Gen Zs, um, they're just, I think, and, and Brian, with your, with your son, um, your children, I mean, I have teenagers too, um, 16 and, uh, oh no, 17 and 13. Um, and they are so aware of the world. They have grown up in a world where they understand issues, the LGBT community, they understand um, issues around uh, racism. They um, you know, gender equality. I mean, just everything. It's so great to see them so aware. And it's really great to see them really making moves today. It's it's amazing. And Brian, a lot of people have been reaching out to you directly uh, to, to try to figure out how to deal with this moment. What are you telling them? How should they be processing this? Uh, processing the name change, you mean? The name change, I mean, just everything that is going on. I mean, literally 2020 has been a year where nothing seems to be going right, but also there is this kind of, you know, opportunity for social transformation. Well, I, you know, I think part of what I would say is what, what is to echo what Amanda has just said. And I think some of the conversations Natalie and I have, have gotten at, I, I think that in some ways 2020 is a moment of, of state is a year of statements Here's where we stand and here's who we are. I think the call has to be for the latter half of the year to be about action and about doing. Because statements, and it's it's true what Natalie said earlier, that words matter. They absolutely do. But it's a certain kind of word for me that matters. So saying you intend to do better or you will is fundamentally different than what you actually do. And so for me, and just in, in the midst of the moment and thinking about 
the Washington football team, I think it's about what lessons have they learned and where will they move forward? I think for larger society in this moment that we're in, it's, it's really about, for me, I, I, I want to encourage people to lead with love and to lead with benevolence and to sort of say, not only can we do better, but we must. We've just been talking about our, our teenage kids and I, spend a lot of time thinking about what kind of world we've provided them and what kind of world and shape we've left them in. And for me, there's a fundamental call here for all of us to do better, to act in different ways, to set the conditions so that they can create futures of their own making, really wrapped up in love and benevolence and sort of work through this in really meaningful ways. But but words devoid of action mean nothing to me and to us. And so that should be our focus for the next six months and beyond, which is doing something. Amanda Blackhorse, Billy Mills, Natalie Diaz, and Brian Brayboy. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yes, thank you. I Thank you much. Thank you. Once again, my special thanks to Amanda Blackhorse, Billy Mills, Natalie Diaz, and Brian Brayboy. That'll do it for this episode of The Huddle. The Huddle is a production of the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at Arizona State University. The producer for this episode was Kendall Jones. The manager of communications and marketing is Chrisal Valencia. To stay up to date on all of our events, podcasts, and stories, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at globalsportmatters.com. I'm Andrew Ramsiami. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, be well.